as we're going through, we start this fall. We have um, our book of Daniel. We are um, four weeks into our six-week series in the first six chapters of Daniel. Then we're going to take a break, um, and then after Christmas, we're going to go through the second six, which deal with the prophecies. I'm very excited about that. Oh, those are so cool. Um, but in the meantime, we'll be in chapter four today, and... Um, and the chapter that we're going to be talking about is one of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible. And it was written around uh, 30 years after the events of chapter 3. Now, chapter 3, if you were here last week, uh, talked about the fiery furnace of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And so, uh, and, uh, so about 30 years passed between those events. So this is about 570. If you missed that message, by the way, you can go to our website, funchurch.com, and listen to it. Also, you can also just read the story itself in Daniel chapter 3. Highly recommend. Uh, why does the date matter? Well, in 586, the Jewish people lost their homeland. So between chapters 3 and 4, the Jewish people were taken over by Babylon. And were completely, the temple was absolutely destroyed. Uh, completely destroyed. The uh, Jewish people were taken captive and put into Babylon and scattered throughout the, their empire. And uh, basically, it seemed like it was the death of the Jews. Right? So some big events took place. And now we have this passage. And this passage is, is something that I think that the Jews were not expecting. Have you ever been a time in life where you thought everything has just fallen apart and you wonder where God is? Well, here they were removed from their homeland, the temple that they, where they worshipped at, all the sacrifices, everything gone. Gone. The implements brought to pagan uh, temples, right? Some of the implements melted down. It seemed as though the world had won and God had lost. Everything they thought to, they, they clung to, this is, this is who we are, and, and this is what we're about, and this is our strength, this is, this is what we could count on, seemed to have been removed. The nation was shaken. I don't know if you've ever been in a place in life like that, but all of us come to it at some points. Some of us more than once. So I love this passage because it speaks directly to a people that are that are seer in captivity. It's a message to a people that, that, that it, for people that are, that are in a world that doesn't make sense. It's, it's a message to a people that wonder, what on earth are you doing, God? Have you ever asked that question? Has the world won? This speaks to that. It's a powerful passage. And it's an amazing thing. In fact, it's an astonishing lesson that we have in here. It's an autobiographical account of a man's most embarrassing episode, right? Which is kind of fun to watch and read about somebody else who has something embarrassing happen in their life, and boy, does it bad. But it's also astonishing less on who's in control. And we need that now more than ever, don't we? When we turn on the news, the TV, we read the newspaper, we, we look at the world, and, and, and it just seems like things have just spun completely out of control. I mean, weather, we've got fires and floods and hurricanes and earthquakes and and just about everything else, all right? But then we also have unrest. We have, obviously, as Christians, being persecuted all over the world at, at record numbers, just horrific things happening. We see political unrest, nations turning against nations, and civil wars within nations we never thought would ever have these things. I mean, it's, it's crazy. I think there are times like this, oftentimes as Christians, we can feel like we, the world is just out of control and we can be nervous, Right? And then we react to it in our own way, which is, doesn't make our faith very respectable. <laughs> and this passage teaches us a much better way because it teaches us an underlying truth that undergirds all of creation and our lives. This is important stuff. 
who's in control. And it gives us a greater peace. Now, before we get to the message, there is a uh, thing, there is a passage in there we're going to memorize. It's our memory verse of the day, and it comes from this lesson. And this was uh, Daniel, who was a very wise individual, giving advice to the emperor of the known world when he got some, uh, some humbling news that I wish the king kept it. But this is good advice. And it says this, renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. There are times we wonder, what do I do in this world? Here's a good next step for us. Renounce your sins, how? By doing what is right. Isn't that powering? Isn't that great? There's a forward step, There's some, right? And your wickedness, how? By being kind to the oppressed. Amazing. Now, I'll tell you in a second how I used it. Just yesterday, this passage became very real in my life. As some of you know, I coach football. And as others of you know, I'm a passionate person, right? <laughs> and we played a playoff game, and um, things didn't go well. And, and not only did they not go well, but they didn't go well because the league decided to violate its own rules. And I'm not usually okay with things like this, especially when it affects our boys. And, uh, and in the heat of the moment, when there was injustice before me affecting these young men who I have made a commitment to defend and to all these types of things, I was tempted very strongly to, to not react in a godly way. And there was some really good opportunities that I was given to respond in a not very good way, right? And, and I was there, and it just, all the passion and everything it would be, I was like, oh, I am going to. And then this verse, renounce your sins, how? By doing what is right. There were young eyeballs on the sidelines, but even more important is there's integrity in here that I, I was like, you know, I'm going to do what's right in this. This verse kept me from doing something stupid. Not just once in the game, by the way, but multiple times. <laughs> right? But also wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. Well, that was a little different because King Nebuchadnezzar, he was wicked. Who were the oppressed people? Were the Jews that they just captured, right? And he wasn't being very kind to them. So that's what he needed to renounce for his wickedness. He was not being kind to the oppressed. I had a different kind of wickedness in my life that I had to be kind, right, to a man who was not being kind back to me. But Jesus said, love even your enemies. So there was a change that it actually made a difference in my life because I, I had advance notice that this was going to be our memory verse, right? So <laughs> I was working through it, right? So on the way down the canyon as we we're in the car trying to pump ourselves up, listening, you know, to like metal music, right? So Thomas is there. I'm like, renounce your sins by doing what is right, right? So it's in my head because <laughs> I'm multitasking because that's what I do, right? And I get there and God uses it. I'll tell you what, the word of God is powerful and it's effective, so take that word and memorize it this week and think about it. You'll be surprised at how God can help you in his word. Now let's get to the rest of it. Uh, chapter 4. If you have Bibles, you want to open them up to Daniel chapter 4. Okay. If you have one of our Bibles, it looks like this. It'll be on page 616. If you don't have a Bible, we've got lots of them in the back. You can um, help yourself. There's a little bookshelf there. If you need a Bible, keep one. That's our gift to you. Uh, everyone should have a copy of the word of God, and we would love for you to have that. Um, now, as you're turning to uh, Daniel 4, you'll notice that this passage is different than all everything else in Daniel. For starters, it's an eyewitness account, uh, an autobiographical account written by an emperor, right? A pagan emperor, by the way. He was a Gentile. He actually writes into the Bible. Uh, the emperor of Babylon writes a passage, a chapter in the Bible, right? So don't ever tell me you can't do something, 
right, that God can't use you. If God can use Emperor Nero to write a chapter in the Bible, he can use you to do things too, right? There's part of it that's that. It's a story of the emperor's most embarrassing moment in his entire life. So I want you to think about it. This is a real guy, and this is something that happened to him. Now think about in your life, because you're a real person, I would suppose, right? Think about your life and the most embarrassing thing that ever happened to you. Okay, you don't have to tell us, right? Think about that. Would you, you want to write that down and let other people know about it? Much less, do you think that you would want to write that down, not only have people know about it now, but have it actually codified in Scripture, right, canonized, so that way for generations to the end of time, people will know this story? It's an amazing thing is that God can change something where, where most of us would think our most embarrassing thing is the last thing I want people to know. What we'll find here is that this is the first thing the king wanted people to know. That's the kind of God we have. He's a transformative God. And he can even take the things that we think we should be embarrassed of and he can use those for his glory and for good things, things that we would be like amazed by. Something else in this chapter is, is structured different than everything else we read before. Most of the things so far have been the story and then the conclusion, right? But the king writes a little different. He starts out with the conclusion. He says, I'm going to get to the point. And I know that some of you are people like that. Like if you want to explain something to you, tell me the point first and then tell me the details. The king is kind of like that. He gives you the point. Here's the results. Here's what happened. Now let me tell you the story and then I'll tell you the results again because it's awesome. That's how it sets up. All right, hopefully all of that have given you enough time to turn in your Bibles to Daniel 4. Okay, so here we are. We start out with an, an astonishing acknowledgement. Verses 1 through thing. Uh, three. this is the king speaking. This is not astonishing for the fact that like, it's in the Bible. It's astonishing for who said it. It says in here, To the nations and the people of every language who live on all the earth. This is something, obviously, he wants people to know about. May you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. This is astonishing. Remember chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar chapter 3, building a statue 90 feet tall of gold so that everybody would worship it? Look at the change of the individual. Daniel 1 through 3, you see this transformation of a man who is so pagan. He is the king and emperor of a pagan empire, living in the city of the house of gods, right? I mean, you talk about far from God. This is a man who's so far from God that not only did he oppress God's people, he destroyed the temple itself. That's pretty far from God, probably further from God than most of us are here. And we see this man over these years and in these chapters, how his faith, he goes from being somebody who doesn't even recognize God to a person who now worships him. There's a transformation. It's a beautiful story. I love the fact that we have a restorative God even in the Old Covenant. When people say that the God of the Old Covenant is different than the God of the New Covenant, I don't think that they've actually read the book. It's an amazing thing. And we have this, here's a man who we would least expect to be praising God. He was the one who ordered the temple to be destroyed. And what does he say? The most high God, his kingdom is forever. This is the guy who last chapter said, my kingdom will last forever. And if you don't agree with me, I'll throw you into a furnace. Is now the guy who's saying, now this God, his kingdom endures forever. You need to know who he is. See, in chapter 2, he acknowledges God's wisdom. In chapter 3, he acknowledges God's power. And in chapter, uh, sorry, in verse 4, he acknowledges God's authority. He recognizes that this God is in control. His kingdom is eternal. 
But I like this in verse 2. Look at verse 2. It says, it's my pleasure. That's the difference. I think that's a difference what God makes in our life. He's going to tell you something very embarrassing that happened to him. And not only does he say, for everybody, I want you to know about this, but he says, it's actually a joy for me. I want you. It's my pleasure to tell you. And it's not about him anymore. This is a guy who was building statues of, of, of himself and of other things. To, like He felt that he was like a god. And now he's at a point that says, this is not even about me. It's my pleasure to tell you not what I did, but what God did for me. Do you know what that's called? Testimony. Isn't it powerful? I don't know about you, before I became a Christian and I was investigating the Christian faith and all the other faiths out there and I was looking through it and, and all of those things, one of the things, even though it was, it was logic and it was the evidence that really brought me to a point that I could accept our faith, one of the things that, that really annoyed me it was talking to people, not just of Christian faith, but other ones too, that were going to argue to me why they felt that their faith was right, but they weren't telling me anything like in their own life. They weren't living it, right? There was no change. Or they would tell me like all this joy and this stuff and the most miserable people. And it wasn't just Christians, right? I think it's just religious people, regardless of your faith, are just miserable people. But they were the most about saying, you have to follow what I tell you to follow, and they look awful, there is a difference in the Christian life. We have something amazing because we have a real God, a living God, who actually makes a difference in us. He's not imaginary and he's not some psycho you know, uh, thought process. It's not about just looking at the world differently. He is real and he changes us. And one of the most, the most convincing evidence, at least for me and I know from very many people, is that what has God done in you? Now, I can tell you the things that God has done in me I mean, I am not the same person. You talk to my wife. I'm not the same person today as the one that she met and the one that she married. God is transforming me. There's, there's a difference in my life, and I've seen his hand in my life. And there's, that's that personal, it, it's real. And if you are in Christ, the real God of the universe has, been, has come into your life. The old person has been put to death, and a new person has been made in you. There's a God who's redeeming you and transforming you, and you also have the opportunity. It should be a pleasure in your life to talk about God, not because you have to. When we want to talk about, you know, I used to think about witnessing was knocking on people's doors and being embarrassed. No. Witnessing was I have the pleasure of talking about this amazing God who is actually real. He's done what I've seen him do for me and his character, and I know that he can do for others. Isn't that a joy? The king had it. The king of Babylon wants to give you his testimony. That's astonishing. So let's hear about the story. Well, it starts in verse 4. Like most testimonies, I was doing just fine. Right? In verse 4, we have there, he says here, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. Right? This is not a guy who's looking for a spiritual renewal or inspiration. He's happy. Have you ever noticed in the Old Testament, like when things are going bad, that's when the Jews, people would come to, to God and they would be like, help us, right? Things are going bad. We'll follow you this time. Promise. <laughs> right? And then they would and then things would go better. And then when things would go better, then they'd be like, oh, things are good. And then a generation would come along who doesn't know God because why would they need him? Everything's good. And then they would forget him and they would do all kinds of bad things and then bad stuff would happen to him in their life. There was a cycle. 
But it's not just them. It's us in our own life. If you Look at your own life. Where are the times where you really turn to God? Aren't they the times when things are really out of control? When you're like really worried or really scared or things like this, you recognize like you're really bad, right? You're like, ah, I need you. I, I, I will really follow you now, Lord. I promise I need your help. But when things are good, when you're contented and you're prosperous and you're at home and you're comfortable, isn't it really hard to want to be challenged by God to go do something? Like things are good. Why would I need to follow you right now? I think it's interesting that, and it's so awesome how loving our God is. That in the moment where Nebuchadnezzar was not even looking for him, God was looking for Nebuchadnezzar. See, what a tragedy it would be if Nebuchadnezzar gained the whole world but lost his soul. And so our God lovingly interrupts his peace. And I think God does that sometimes in our lives too. There are times when we feel like, we're got this, we're on top of this, we don't need you. And he reminds us how poor and naked that we really are. Not because he's being mean, but because he loves us too much to let us just go down that path to our own destruction. So Nebuchadnezzar, how does God get a hold of him? Well, God meets Nebuchadnezzar through dreams. We see that on chapter 1, we see that happening. We saw that happening in chapter 2, a little bit we have here. Nebuchadnezzar gets dreams, and they bother him, and he knows the difference between, oh, they had, you know, some weird falafel something, and then also, oh my goodness, God's talking to me, right? So, he has one of those dreams. We've seen this before, and so what does he do? Well, verse 5, it says that he called the wise men in, and so they come in, and they're like, uh, I don't know, right? Because... They don't know God, I guess. I don't know. They, don't, they haven't learned. Now, luckily for these wise men, Nebuchadnezzar's kind of mellowed over the last 30 years, and he wasn't like, tell me my dream or I'll cut you up into pieces, right? At this point, he's like, here's my dream. Can you tell me? And they're like, no. Nah. So he's like, all right, bring in Daniel. Why did he wait to bring in Daniel? I don't know. He's the king. He can do whatever he wants. doesn't tell us. He just said he brought him in later, right? So he brings him in, and in verses 8 and 9, uh, I love how he talks to him. He says, finally, like here I've tried all these other morons. They can't even figure it out, right? Finally. Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. And then he has this little parenthetical thought where he's taking some ownership over, because you could tell he's not perfectly transformed yet. Here's a man that's still in the process of sanctification, right? He says, he's called Belshazzar after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. He's like, this is my guy, right? He just want everybody to know that. I, I picked this guy, I named him, he's my guy. So this is who he is. And I said, Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know the, whole, the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Now, wouldn't you love to walk into a room and have your boss say something like that to you? You're like, hey, Aaron, chief of all the staff. I know that you are excellent in all that you do. You can figure out this problem. Right? You just walk in a safe way. People. That is, that's what he gets. He walks in there, and that's feeling pretty good. And then he says, all right, tell me what my dream is. I think it's interesting. This here's, you have a long period of time that Daniel had an opportunity to gain the trust of the king. When everything else failed, where did he turn to? He turned to this godly man. He was in the center of all power and wealth and education and all this kinds of stuff. But when everything else fails, he turns to the godly one. And he recognizes that he's prosperous because he's godly. I think for us, oftentimes we think about that most of spiritual things in life happen in the big events. But I think we build a respectable faith in the, in, the, in the small things. 
in the days where nothing big happens, in those years and in those decades where it doesn't seem like God is at work, is when we have that, that quiet, consistent integrity of faith. Those that are around us, they're going to turn to all kinds of things, but there is stability that God puts into our lives. And in people's, when they go through difficult things, when everything else fails, oftentimes, and I hear it from, from you guys, oftentimes people turn to you. Why? Not because you're awesome, but because you serve an awesome God. And they've seen it in your life. You've been consistent. It is in the quiet things that great things are built. And Daniel built a reputation with the king. And when it mattered, the king knew exactly who to turn to. And Daniel was ready. So in verses uh, 10, uh, starting verse 10, we, we have this, uh, this amazing, astonishing dream. So I'll read it to you because, uh, well, the Bible does better at this. It says, um, it says, this is the vision I had while I was in bed. I looked and there before me was a tree in, in, in the middle of the land. And its height was enormous. And it grew so large and strong that it touched the sky. And it was visible to the very ends of the earth. And its leaves were beautiful and its fruit was abundant. And on it was food for all. And under were the wild animals and they found shelter. And the birds lived in its branches, and from, every, and, and from it every creature was fed. It's a good tree. And then in the vision I saw while lying in bed, I looked, and there before me was the Holy One, a messenger, it's an angel, coming down from heaven. And he called out in a loud voice, Cut down the tree and trim off its branches and strip off the leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches, and let the stump and its roots be bound with iron and bronze, Remain, may, let, they remain, let them remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. And let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. And let him live with the animals amongst the plants of the earth. And let his mind be changed from that of a man. And, and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times, at seven years, pass for him. The decision is announced by messengers or the holy ones to declare this verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets them over them, even the lowliest of people. That's the dream. That's a freaky, weird dream. And so the king, he, he says to Daniel, this is my dream. This is what I had. And, he, and Daniel hears this and in, in verse 19 it says that he's perplexed. Right? Daniel doesn't want to tell the king why, because we have this, this very astonishing interpretation. Now, I think the king maybe had a, an idea this maybe had been coming, was hoping it wasn't, but Daniel, when he heard it, he's like, you don't want to tell the emperor bad news like this. And so he's thinking about it. I'm sure Daniel's like, I don't want to tell you, because he's thinking of all, all of the ramifications. This is a guy who just right before, I mean, a few years before, ransacked his homeland and destroyed the temple. This is a guy that's not really been known so much for his, you know, his, his uh, kindness and gentleness. And Daniel doesn't want to say. And I think there are times in our life, right, when God puts us, he's like doing something great and he puts us in a position and then you get nervous because it could cost you. That sometimes happens in the people of God, but God will meet us there. And he met Daniel there. And the, and the king recognizes this. And the king says to Daniel, listen, I know that this is probably not great, but don't worry, I won't, you know, tell me what it says. You're good, right? And then Daniel says, I think there's something amazing. He says, you know, I wish, king, that this was for your enemies, not for you. And I think that's heartfelt. I think over time that, uh, that, that Daniel was like, um, 
you know, I think Daniel and the king, Nebuchadnezzar, got to have a relationship. And think how amazing this is. Here is this Jewish prophet saying to the very emperor who destroyed the temple, he's saying to him, I wish this wasn't for you. Can you imagine me standing there face to face with who you think to be your oppressor? And not say, oh, you're going to get it. <laughs> oh, 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 I can't wait to tell you what God's going to do to you. right? Because that's probably what I would do. Which is why I'm not Daniel. He was a wise man. But I think he said genuinely, heartfelt, there was a mercy in this, this wise individual. He says, you know what? I wish this wasn't for you. But it is. And he goes on and he, he starts to give him the good news first. First, uh, verse 22, your majesty, you are the tree. That's good news. I mean, look at that. You grow up big and there are a lot of people who have benefited from you. Right? Everybody knows about you. All the wild animals find shelter. You brought peace and prosperity to this land and all this kind of stuff. There's no doubt. You are the tree. And I think for us sometimes when we look at the enemies of God, all we see is just, we see them as just the enemies of God. And we don't see the good things that God has done through them. Even though Nebuchadnezzar wasn't perfect, he brought prosperity to a lot of people, didn't he? And peace. God can even use the wicked to do great things, but God is the one who causes it. But Nebuchadnezzar had gone too far. And so in verse 24, there was a decree that was, that was set out. It says, this is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree that the Most High has issued against my Lord, the King. Now, I think if anybody, a prophet, came to me and said, God has issued a sentence against you, you would be a little nervous. God. Because God is in control. Here is a man who had nobody tell him what to do. He was the man who issued the decrees, and God said, wait a second. There is one who issues decrees for you, and this is what I'm going to do to you, and you have no power over it. In verse 25, this is what he's going to do to him. He says, uh, you're going to be, you're going to lose your mind. All right, you're going to be driven away from your people. You're going to live like the wild animals. You will eat grass like an ox. You're going to be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven years are going to pass until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms, and that gives them to anyone he wishes. God's basically giving him a very, very poignant time out. So you are going to lose your mind. You're going to get this thing. It's, it's a mental illness, uh, zoanthropy. People think that they're animals. And God's going to do that to him, and you're going to be humiliated. And you got to love all this palace. You're comfortable in your home. Well, you're going to have your home, but you're not going to be smart enough to live in it. You're going to live outside eating the grass on the lawn. And everybody's going to see it, and you're going to be humiliated. And you have all that royal and all that splendor and all that kind of stuff. No one's going to come to you for advice. There's nothing you can do about it. And beyond that, it says the stump is going to be uh, bound up. Um, and so the stump is going to be it. It's not going to be able to grow from this, but it's not going to be uprooted. See, God is merciful. He wasn't, he wasn't uh, this wasn't a punishment, but this was discipline. He was teaching the king something, I think, amazing. He wasn't going to uproot the king and say, you know what, you're out. And a lot of empires in the world have been uprooted, haven't they? We don't even know about them, Right? But he said, you know what, you're going to stay, but you're going to be bound. You're not going to be able to grow until I allow you to grow. And then I'm going to reestablish you. But I'm going to reestablish you after you learn this very important lesson that you aren't everything you think you are. (laughs) And there's somebody else. I, God, is in control. Now, Daniel, when speaking to the king on this, he offers some unsolicited advice. Right? He recognized that there was 
there was justice coming. And here is a man standing before the destroyer of his people. And instead of saying, this is what God has done to you, I'm sorry, I can't help. This man of God who knows the character of God says this in verse 27. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. Even up to this point, I mean, Daniel believes in the mercy of God. And he says, King, you don't have to go through this. If you just follow what God says, I mean, right now, if you repent, right, if you turn, right, if, if, you, if you would just follow him, right, if you would start being kind to the oppressed and you stop, stop thinking, you know, lose the pride, man, maybe you're not going to have to do this. If you would just recognize that God is the God, that, that, that's the lesson you're supposed to learn, if you would just learn that right now, maybe you won't have to go through this hard time. I don't know, have ever you met, known somebody that you've been trying, like somebody in your family or a friend or whatever, and they just keep making these horrible decisions and you're saying to them, listen, the word of God, there's consequences, right, if we don't abide by this, and, and, but God is merciful, you just turn and they, they're just, they don't want to listen. And then bad things happen, doesn't mean that God doesn't love them, he's getting through to them. Right, but as a good friend, aren't you compelled to tell them? Maybe you are that person. Maybe you are the one that all the times wanted to make the bad choices, <laughs> Right? And you've been not listening to the good advice. Let me tell you, there's a great thing. God is not the kind of parent that's out there looking for reason to smack his kids. Okay? We all know parents that are like that, right? They just look for any reason to make their kids or like to embarrass them or whatever. Those are bad parents. But not like us, right? Our God is a good father. He looks for every reason he can to lift us up. But when we need discipline, he brings it because he's loving. He's not going to allow us to get out of here. That's the way he is. But I'll tell you, he doesn't need to discipline you if you're following what he tells you to do. So, follow what he tells us to do. Life is better. That's what he's saying. Repent. Does the king listen to him? No. Right? We have that in verse 29. And the king even says this. uh, uh, He says, 12 months later, as the king was walking on the roof of his palace, 12 months, a whole year had passed. I'm sure Daniel at this point had wondered, did I get this interpretation wrong? Like, was this really bad falafel, maybe? I don't know. You ever wondered? Like, God puts you in a position, you, you go on a limb, you know, you're really trying to follow him, and then there's nothing. He was probably there, but God was at work. Twelve months had passed. I'm sure the king had totally forgot about his dream by this point. Maybe for the first couple days, he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm going to totally renounce my sins. I'm going to do what's right. What's right, Daniel? What am I supposed to do? Okay, I'm going to be kind to the oppressed. Uh, be, be nice to these people. And then after a while, it gets hard to, to repent. So he's like, eh, forget that. I'm going to be back in my comfortable palace. We're all like that, aren't we? We need life change, right? We need change inside the soul. None of us has the ability of our own selves to just be like, oh, I'm going to will through all this and just make myself perfect. God needs to be working in us. And the king, he didn't change his life. And so he's walking on his palace, his roof of his palace. I love how he says here. He says, Is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Who has conversations like this? I have never once walked through my house. Isn't this the house of Dorman? That I have built by my hard work for my goodness, right? But maybe we do. We're honest. You ever just walk through your life thinking, I did all of this? This is just for me. It's about me. It's the same sin. Nebuchadnezzar was just a little more bold. And it was at that moment, right at that very moment, 
It says immediately, verse 33, oh, <laughs> that, uh, that he, he was strucken with this thing. Actually, right before it, it says that, uh, verse uh, 31, even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what's decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. I'm just going to remind you of something. Right? You're going to be driven away from your people. And he recounts exactly what's going to happen to him. And then it says immediately it happened. Like he didn't have time to argue. He was like, no, wait, wait, wait. No, time for repentance was over. And he was given the mind of an ox. Now, it had to be very awkward for all of the guards, right? And for all the people that lived in the thing. This was a real event. Can you imagine if the President of the United States one day is walking down the hall and the sun's like, boom, right? Because that's what happened. And he's on the roof, which means they had to get him outside. Right? I'm sure he wandered through the halls. And like, the king is eccentric, so what do we do? They're afraid, Right? And then they probably went outside and they watched him. Like, what is he doing? Is it some kind of lesson or something? And you die? What is he up to, right? And I'm sure that they had important documents to sign or whatever. And they get down before him and like, King, I really need you to sign this. And he would just look at him with like dumb cow eyes. Be like, <laughs> right? That's what he did. And you know how politics work, don't you? Seven years is a long time to have a, a, a king that is out of his mind. I guarantee that there were people waiting in the wings trying to murder him, to take his power, but by the mercy and the grace of God, it didn't happen. I think that's one of the biggest miracles in this entire story, that God preserved his reign. But it also lets you know how terrified people were of him. Right? They let him walk around for seven years. His, his hair grew all long, got matted and all that kind of stuff, and he's just around chewing stuff. Right? That's what he does for seven years. And then we have... We have a change. We have this, this amazing uh, transformation that we have next. It's after seven years. You have this first is the amazing transformation of a king and all of his glory and all of his might and all of his power reduced to a cow, an animal. That's a pretty big transformation, right? One of the wisest people to somebody like choose their cut. But that wasn't the only transformation because then in verse 34... It says, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my sanity was restored. One of those truest verses all you'll ever read. There's a transformation in Christian life. We start in this, don't we, in this world? We all think we're good, don't we? Well, I think I'm a pretty good person. I'm better than most. That's what most of us think, which means that we can't be right. But I think I'm better than most. And so I live by these things, and I have my own morals and all this kind of stuff. And then I become, I, I come and I hear the gospel, and I realize that I'm a sinner. Like, I'm not good enough. I haven't made the cut that all of us have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, all of us. None of us are good enough. Every single one of us says we're the enemies of God. Every one of us. Every one of us deserving of his wrath. Every one of us. There's a transformation that we each take, doesn't it? We come from being our own king of our own world, all of a sudden being reduced to realizing the, the very depth of poverty of, of spirit that we have that's a hard place to be but god doesn't leave us there because that's only the first part of the gospel then we lift our eyes to heaven i think it's in that moment of depravity whether it's our life is falling apart and we recognize that i can't i don't have it all together right or it's that moment where i'm recognizing my own sin and i and i need something i need god's forgiveness right or that fear that i have of recognizing that there's something after this world and i know i'm not ready for it whatever it is there's a point at which we turn our eyes and we look to heaven and then our sanity is restored and i would say for the very first time maybe we have sanity because the king was finally free from the delusion that he was in control and i think each of us gets that don't we when we come to christ 
That's why we call him Lord. It means he's in control. We have that moment where we look to God and say, not my will anymore, but yours be done. What a powerful thing. Nebuchadnezzar has this moment. And his sanity comes to him. Now, later on, next after Christmas, we'll go in other chapters. In fact, chapter 7, we talk about the, the kingdom is not just part of a statue. They're given like these animal uh, things. They get to be different animals. And for Babylon, it was, uh, there was a, one of his uh, things. He, he gets to have his, it's an animal that actually has his mind restored. <laughs> gets to think like a man. Gets to stand up like a man. And you know that after this point in, in history, why we think, why we date this event to where we did, not only is there extra biblical evidence showing that this event took here, but there's also, you have uh, Babylon stops being an aggressive nation. It stops oppressing the poor. It's an amazing thing. There was a transformation politically, geopolitically, that happened right around that time. Isn't it amazing? See, Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges God's sovereignty and he repents. At that moment, he raises his eyes to heaven in verse 35, or verse 34. It says, And I praised the Most High, and I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures for generation to generation. And all the peoples on the earth are regarded as nothing. And he does as he pleases with all of the powers of heaven and with the peoples on earth. And no one can hold back his hand. And no one can say to him, what have you done? He stops trying to be the judge of God. And I think all of us need to get to that point, right? In our Christian walk in our life. Because all of us, we look at God and we say, how can you let things in this world happen like this? You are guilty, God. You're not loving. You're not good. And Nebuchadnezzar got to the part, and he was like, well, I just suffered being a cow for all this time. God has the power to do whatever he wants, but I'll tell you this. God is still good. I'm not trying to judge God anymore. I'll let God judge me. That's, he's much better at that. And he gets to this point, point. he says this is where he is, and he recognizes God's sovereignty. And then what does God do? God is amazing. God could have just flattened him. But instead, it says, at that time that my sanity was restored, my honor, my splendor were returned to me, for the glory of my, and the glory of my kingdom, my advisors and my nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne that became even greater than before. See, God wasn't just there to smack Nebuchadnezzar down. I think part of this was for the people of Israel who were taken captive. I might, they were wondering, has God forgotten about us? Here we are captives in the land, and we lost the temple. Did, did, did the world win? And God showed them in a really real way. He's like, you know what, I'm going to make that great king. I'm going to turn him into a cow for you guys. Enjoy. Right? <laughs> Right, for, for seven years, you get a nice show, right? And then after that, he says he turns, them into, he turns them into a believer. But the people of Israel recognized their God was bigger than a temple, that he was untethered and unchained from, from ritual and all these other things, that their God is eternal. And he could even make that pagan king bow a knee to the God of, 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 Yah, of, of Israel and say, you are the true God. <laughs> That's an amazing thing. But then God does an amazing thing for this guy who turns to him, this, this, this pagan king. He turns to him, he says, now that you recognize who I am, everything you get back and it's going to be even better than before. And the golden age of Babylon began. How cool. And so it says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, verse 37, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all of his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Nebuchadnezzar recognizes control. Now I'll tell you, you can't say that, that everything that God does is right until you've gone through a time in your life where it doesn't feel like what he's doing is right. 
Because you could just say it from a philosophical sense. Yeah, God is good. But when you get to a point in your life when something horrible has happened and you can't justify a loving God allowing something bad like that happening, and you walk through that dark valley with God and you recognize that he's bigger than you and that he is still good despite your circumstances, when you get to the other side of that, you can recognize and can testify in a very powerful way. God is good and anything he does is good. And that's a powerful testimony. And that's the kind of testimony that's respectable. Because it's not a testimony that's wishy-washy about what's happening in the world. It's the kind of testimony that's a bedrock. And our world needs a bedrock. So building a faith that is respected in this very hostile age requires us to know who's in charge. There are four key truths that I think we could pick up from this passage that are important for us today. The first one is that power comes from God. And we look in the world today and we see that most people that are in power are not godly. That doesn't mean that God's not in control. Doesn't that give you peace? When you look at the things, and, and all of, not just the governments, but all of the other institutions around the world, and they seem even, it seems ungodly, God is still in control. Even though the temple may be destroyed and we're taken to a pagan land, God is still in control. We need to really get that because it gives us the ability to have peace. God's not looking to us to bring about his kingdom by force. He's saying, trust me, bring my kingdom through obedience, through peace, right, <laughs> and through love. Second thing is success comes from God. If you think in your life, you look at everything around you and you think, I did this on my own for my own glory, watch out. Because God is able to humble anybody. But if you look and you say, why would God give me success? Maybe he gave Daniel success for a reason. Maybe he gave Nebuchadnezzar success for a reason. And maybe he's giving you success in your life for a reason. Maybe the reason that you have the ability that you have or the things that you're able to do, those gifts that you have, there's something that he's calling from you. Be faithful in your success because it comes from him. And he can remove it from you anytime he wants. Next thing I think we know is that honor is from God. People that gain respect, you're going to gain respect if God wants you to have those things. Be faithful and he'll give you the respect that you need. So many people try in this world to strive so hard to make other people impressed, right? And doing so, they step on other people and they violate their own consciences and they do bad things. And God says, you know what? Yeah, he can allow and he can work through people like that. But I'll tell you this, we don't have to live like that, do we? God can bring you honor. And that's something that's deep and you really want. If you want to be an honorable person, be faithful. Be a faithful person. Trust God. Even in a culture that doesn't honor God, God can bring you honor. We don't have to violate our consciences. Daniel certainly didn't. God brings honor. And that's the thing I think we get at this is that God is in control. We say it, but we have to mean it. We have to really understand. It doesn't matter if we believe it or not. He's still in control. Nebuchadnezzar had no idea the control of God. At the end of the story, he did. And I'll tell you, in your life right now, it may seem like things are spinning out of control. Or you might be comfortable and content. In either case, recognize this. There is a sovereign God who is in control. And so our takeaway is respect who's in control. That's how we build a respectable faith. Respect is a control in history. That this world is not spinning outside of God's understanding. He is doing something right now in the world. He's setting up something amazing. He's building his kingdom. And it doesn't matter how it looks right now. At the end, we will look back like an amazing masterpiece. And we'll see, I got to be part of that. And God was awesome. He is in control. Another thing, he's not only control in history, he's in control of world events today. Even difficult, painful things, he will allow bad things to happen, even to good people, and he will allow good things to happen to bad people for a short time. 
He's doing something, and we're not to judge him. We are to say, yes, sir, what can we do to be in obedience with what you're doing? Respect is a control. But also what this does is it removes the, the pressure, doesn't it? I used, when I watch the news, I get so mad. And Amy will tell you, I get, ah, and I walk around. I'm like, oh, these, these people, and they say these things that are so not with God, right? And I get so mad, but I'm wasting my energy. God is already sovereign over them. Instead, he tells me to love and to be faithful, and I can do that. Next thing, last thing is here, God is sovereign in your life, your life. Right now, today, he is sovereign, and I don't know what he's doing. This may be part of those, those decades long of quiet times of just being faithful. Maybe right now you're at one of those big times. Maybe you've had the dream, right? Maybe you're standing before the king. Wherever it is, God is still in control of your life today. He hasn't forgotten about you. He loves you deeply, and he's doing something right now. What does he ask you to do? Oh, well, isn't it nice that the word of God tells us? It says when we know this, that God is in control. It says something that we're to renounce our sin by doing what is right, right? And our wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. So how do we put this in together in our life? Well, if you have your connection card, I would encourage you to take it out because I have next steps how to do this, very practical ways. The first thing I would encourage you to do as you take out your connection card this week to commit to is, and you say, and why do you always have commitments for us? Because if you listen to the word of God and you don't do anything about it, you're wasting your time, right? That's why. So if you're wondering, what do I do next? I'm making this practical for you. This is what I want you to do next, right? Daniel, memorize Daniel. I already told you in my life, this last, just yesterday, how this helped me. The word of God is helpful. Maybe you need the word of God in your life. Memorize it. How about this? Maybe read Daniel 4. The word of God is powerful, right? And it also feeds our souls. So don't starve your soul. This is a great place to be. If you want to read an encouraging book about somebody else's really embarrassing part of their life, right, with a happy ending, who doesn't want all of those events? Read chapter 4, right? This week, get into it. How about this? Maybe what you need to do is renounce your sins of wickedness. Maybe right now, you know that you are living more like Nebuchadnezzar than you are like Daniel. And right now, you know there are things that are standing between you and God's will. Maybe what's exactly what you need right now is the courage to say, I'm going to renounce these sins by doing what is right. I'm going to renounce my wickedness and be kind to the oppressed. Maybe that's exactly where you are. And I'll tell you, if that's you, you're going to need support and help. So that's why I asked you to tell me about that, because I'll be praying for you this week and supporting you if you, if you need other help contact me also maybe what you need to do is just you need to respect god's sovereignty maybe you are at a point in your life right now things seem crazy and you just need trust and you need to remember again even when the, uh, it's hardest to believe that god is really in control you're going to say by faith i understand this god has been in control since daniel all the way to today i'm going to trust his sovereignty now because if you put that down there i'll tell you i'll be praying for you this week god's peace and his wisdom right will be with you and god will lead you so maybe that's where you need to be. Maybe there's something else that God's, the Holy Spirit's telling you to tell me, tell me what you're doing because I want you to follow the Lord, right? And I want to support you in it. So write that down. If you have another uh, commitment that you need to make, on, you can write one of those down there. Let me know. Also, if you have a prayer request, this sovereign God who's in control of all things has asked us to come to him, cast our cares upon him. He invites that. Isn't that cool? And we do. And every week we get answered prayers, right? Because we talk to God. So let me... Tell me how I can pray for you specifically. Otherwise, you just get a general prayer, and you don't want that. You want something specific in your life. So tell me, how can I pray for you? That would be an awesome thing, and we'll be praying for you this week. And in a second, we're going to take our offering. Take our offering, take these connection cards, put them in the offering basket along with your tithes and your gifts, and uh, make this a commitment as an offering of your, of your heart to God. Let's pray for all of our commitments now.
Father, God, thank you for you, your sovereignty, your goodness, your kindness, your mercy, your love. God, you are powerful and you are good. Lord, I pray for us as a church that <laughs> we would be the type of disciples who would trust you, not just when you're doing things our way, but, Father, that we'd be the type of disciples that would trust you enough to say, Lord, help us do things your way. Lord, do a change in us. I pray that you transform us just like you did Nebuchadnezzar. I, I thank you that uh, that wonderful story that shows us that you can free us from, from the fallacy of thinking that we actually are in control and that we have to hold that burden. God, I pray instead that you would allow us to come to you as truly our Lord. Let us be the type of disciples who follow you. Lord, in this church, I pray you build your kingdom in our hearts and our lives. Let us be faithful to you. And in that, Father, I pray that you would help us to have the mercy and the grace and the testimony we need to be able to demonstrate, uh, to, to proclaim the good things that you've done in our lives and the great God that you are so worthy. Everything you do is right and just. And Lord, I pray too for the commitments we make. Help us to keep those. I pray also too, Father, for our tithes and our offerings. Use them to build your kingdom in Estes and beyond. We ask this in Christ's wonderful name. Amen.